What is unfolding in the dystopian surveillance state and open-air prison that is the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region is considered one of the worst human rights abuses in the world today. Anywhere from 1 to 3 million people, including Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Tajiks, and other ethnic minorities, are forcibly confined to the Xinjiang province by the authoritarian Chinese government, simply because they speak a different language and embrace a different culture. Through discussions about digital authoritarianism, Uyghur forced labor, and personal detention stories, academics, journalists, and activists in this episode provide a multidimensional understanding of the genocide unfolding in the Xinjiang region today and offer concrete ideas on how listeners can help stand up against these atrocities. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. This episode was recorded during a two-day event series co-hosted by the Human Rights Foundation and Harvard University called Genocide in the 21st Century, the Uyghur Crisis. For more information on HRF's work in this area, please visit our website at hrf.org. Hope everyone is doing well and staying healthy during these difficult times. I'm Jenny Wang from the Human Rights Foundation. HRF is a nonprofit organization based in New York dedicated to protecting and promoting human rights in countries ruled by authoritarian regimes, such as China, Cuba, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and North Korea. Our work is to advocate for people in these countries, represent political prisoners, shine a light on dictators' repression and corruption, support brave frontline activists, and educate people from around the world about the importance of protecting individual rights. On behalf of HRF, welcome and thank you all for joining us here today as we kick off this joint online conference series, Genocide in the 21st Century, the Uyghur Crisis. We are so grateful to organize this event in partnership with Harvard University's Human Rights Working Group, Harvard Law School Advocates for Human Rights, the Jewish Movement for Uyghur Freedom, the Trebuchet, and Harvard Kennedy School Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. According to HRF's political regime analysis, China is a fully authoritarian regime in which there is no respect for the fundamental rights of citizens and where there is no separation of powers or judicial independence. The Chinese government maintains a strong grip on all aspects of its people's lives in order to heavily suppress any criticism about and any rhetoric that goes against the Chinese Communist Party's rule and ideologies. Egregious human rights abuses conducted by the Chinese Communist Party in the Uyghur regime have been ongoing for decades. In recent years, the CCP's abuses have severely escalated, turning the region into an open air prison and a dystopian surveillance state where freedoms have become non-existent for the Uyghur people and where their religion and their culture are being erased. Between one to three million Uyghurs in the region, along with Kazakhs, Tajiks, 
and other ethnic minorities have been forcibly separated from their families and detained in China's mass network of internment camps, where they are subject to mental and bodily torture, forced sterilizations, political indoctrination classes, and forced labor. This system of abuse has been recognized as a genocide by the United States. As the CCP continues its campaign of genocide on the weaker people, all of us here today at this very event must take matters into our own hands and help keep pressure on the Chinese government by talking and learning about these abuses and supporting the Uyghur people wherever they are. We must not let the CCP's propaganda machine, which reaches far beyond its own borders, including on social media, in academic institutions, and even in Hollywood, to wash over and silence the truth about these crimes against humanity. This two-day virtual event will feature engaging panelists to provide participants with a multi-dimensional understanding of the genocide currently unfolding in the Uyghur region. Our sessions will focus on several areas, including digital authoritarianism, personal stories from Uyghurs and their families, forced labor against the Uyghur people, and what we can do to keep this issue on the forefront of the agendas of governments and corporations alike. Individuals, anyone, can contribute to raising awareness on these issues. Throughout the programming, please do not hesitate to ask questions via the Ask a Question link below. We believe these discussions and dialogue are incredibly important as we continue to raise more awareness and understanding about this urgent and timely issue. Our first session for this virtual event aims to provide a foundational overview about the Chinese government's human rights abuses, its disregard for rule of law, and its global impact. Topics covered in this segment will include a background on the Uyghur genocide, repression in Tibet, the dismantling of democracy in Hong Kong, threats to Taiwan, and the CCP's overreaching authoritarian influence globally. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Timothy Gross, Dr. Sean Roberts, and Alex Chow onto the stage. Well, Dr. Timothy Gross is an associate professor of China studies at the Rose Holman Institute of Technology, and his expertise is in ethnicity, ethnic policy, and minority education in China. And his first book was about the Xinjiang class modeled on the Tibet class, which annually takes thousands of Tibetans to boarding schools away from Tibet. His current research focuses on the Uyghur population in China. Dr. Sean Roberts, he's an associate professor, the practice of international affairs, and the director of international development studies program. His expertise is in Central Asia, in which he has done extensive research on the Uyghur people in the Uyghur region, as well as in Central Asia and Turkey. And he is the author of the book, The War on the Uyghurs, China's Campaign Against Xinjiang's Muslim, highlighting the severe repression in the region. And our third speaker, Alex Chow, will be joining us shortly. 
and he is one of the three main figureheads of the series of democracy protests that took Hong Kong by storm in 2014 alongside Nathan Law and Joshua Wong. Alex Chow was a main organizer of the Occupy Central Campaign, which was a civil disobedience movement demanding political reform and democratic elections. And Chow has since been nominated alongside Nathan Law and Joshua Wong for a Nobel Peace Prize. He is currently a doctoral candidate in geography at the University of California, Berkeley. As a note, as I mentioned earlier, please feel free to ask questions below. The format of this session will be as follows. I will provide all panelists here to share about three to five minutes of remarks. And then we will have a moderated conversation followed by 15 to 20 minutes Q&A. Dr. Timothy Gross, would you like to start? Thank you very much. It's an absolute uh, honor to have been invited for this important event. Um, and, and to get started to kind of kick off uh, the dialogue and then the Q&A of, of uh, prepared uh, very, very short remarks with some visuals um, that maybe will help stir uh, discussion afterwards. Uh, but I'm gonna go very, very quickly uh, since I only have, have five minutes. Um, and essentially what I want to point out is that, uh, you know, under Xi Jinping's tenure uh, as, as the party secretary, we see tightening of uh, expressions of ethnicity, especially uh, within the realm of religious piety. Um, underneath like the, the discourse of rhetoric of, um, uh, of you know, assimilating you know, religious traditions and ethnicity within the larger Chinese nation of the Donghua Minzu. Uh, and then since the speech and, and since the speech and since um, uh, the CCP has, has made it a priority to quote unquote sinicize uh, religion and ethnicity um, uh, throughout its, its quote unquote periphery regions, uh, we've seen the literal destruction of religious sites uh, and religious symbols. Uh, not just uh, in, in Wigal regions, but also in regions dominated by Tibetans. And we're seeing also uh, similar um, um, destruction campaigns of religious sites uh, in Hui-dominated areas, especially in Lingxia, Gansu province. Um, now, we don't need to have time to go through all of these, but what we can see the pattern of the religious persecution targeting Tibetans is most of it's contained within the monastery. Um, and, and we need to realize the um, deep historical roots of this esoteric knowledge that Tantric Buddhism provides for Tibetans uh, and how it links them to the community, right? So there's, there's this really intimate link. Uh, so for the most part, the CCP has focused on monastic communities for its, its oppression. Um, but on the outside, we see a facade of religious revival, right? I mean, you can go to uh, large sprawling monasteries uh, throughout um, the Tibet Autonomous Region, uh, in Amdo, in Kham, uh, in other words, in the, the administrative units, now Qinghai, uh, Gansu, uh, Yunnan, and, and Sichuan. But within the walls of the monasteries, these boundaries, um, we see uh, you know, strict quotas on the number of, of Sangha or these ordained priests, um, uh, tighter controls on the content, um, and then these are now then trickling down to uh, people. Sure. Yeah. Excuse me, Dr. Gross, uh, I believe you have a presentation you wanted to share during this, correct? Oh, Were yeah, you, it's not, it's it's not, not on the screen right now. I just wanted to jump in and flag that for you. Oh, okay, thank you. I thought it was sharing. Um, uh, okay, 
<laughs> so we're here already. We're almost halfway through the slide. So here, here are here's this kind of facade of religious revival uh, going on uh, in Tibetan regions. Um, when in reality, uh, we have this this list of of the types of, of persecution and restrictions on religious practice. Um, but it, again, it, it's it's largely confined at this point to within the, the monastery. And what's behind this, right? So why do we uh, why does it appear to have uh, kind of a thriving Buddhist culture in Tibet. Um, and, you know, we can, we can, you know, trace it to basically revenue generated by tourism, and especially domestic tourism by Han Chinese who have become fascinated with Tibetan culture, and more especially with Tibetan Buddhism. Now, Xinjiang doesn't have that sort of um, uh, attraction among uh, among uh, uh, Chinese tourists, uh, and especially the kind of the Central Asian interpretations and expressions uh, of Islam. So there's no tourism generating this kind of, um, you know, a a a renaissance of of Islam uh, in Xinjiang. Rather, we see these very very public uh, restrictions uh, on piety, uh, all the way to the body itself and to the types of dress. Um, and even to the individual identity, uh, now there are certain names uh, which are illegal. Uh, here are um, actual um, notifications in the Xinjiang daily uh, of people changing their names and the names of their children because uh, they were too uh, religious, too Islamic in content. So, uh, and this course is is in addition to the mass incarcerations, my own work, which is uh, available on the Xinjiang Documentation Project that's hosted by UBC, uh, has tens of thousands of documented cases of of of, of Uyghurs uh, who are placed either in detention centers or re-education uh, camps. And unlike this, um, you know, unlike what we see going on in Tibetan areas, where there is this this curiosity and interest in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, there is a kind of a, a deep and growing uh, Islamophobia uh, in China, which we can see uh, kind of rear its ugly head on Chinese security. Uh, so this comes down to this, these very, very broad points. Why do we see these different forms of repression occurring in different communities? Um, this chart is, is inspired by Susan McCarthy, uh, who wrote a book called um, Communist Multiculturalism. Essentially, what we see the Uyghurs who are um, experiencing the worst and most severe forms of repression, um, it's because their identity, uh, their ethno identity and religious identity are fused uh, and kind of bounded by ethno nationalism in a type of, of identity that's furthest away from a Sinicized Zhonghua Ming. Uh, whereas Tibetans kind of fall in two different areas, right? There, there's the Sinic qualities to it. Buddhism, of course, uh, beyond Tantric Buddhism, uh, has a long and storied history within China. But of course, having diaspora communities and, and leaders in exile, and of course, Holy, Holiness of Dalai Lama, sometimes has that line uh, crossed into the more severe repressions. Whereas Hui, um, because of, 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 uh, of centuries of assimilation, sharing of a common language, et cetera, they see uh, the, the least severe forms of repression. Uh, so those are just my my very very quick remarks, and hopefully they, they spur a uh, conversation later. Thank you, Tim Gross, for those opening remarks. It was a really good brief overview. Um, looking forward to hearing Dr. Sean Roberts' opening remarks.
you. Um, I uh, I wanted to uh, highlight uh, often when when people ask me why uh, we're seeing uh, what's happening in um, the Uyghur region of China, why it's happening now, and I often frame this as a perfect storm of factors. Uh, I think one of them is something that was already brought up by Jenny and Tim, which is kind of the movement under Xi Jinping to a flattening of differences throughout China. Um, but I also think that, you know, looking at the history of Uyghur's relationship with modern China, um, we also see that there's kind of an evolving colonization of, of the Uyghur region. Um, one of the uh, notable things about um, China's attitude towards this region is they don't identify anybody as an indigenous population to this region. In fact, the state position is this region has always been part of China. So there, there hasn't been really the kind of um, ability to decolonize this relationship over time. Um, you know, through the decades, particularly since 1949, when modern China has tried to integrate this region more, there have been various uh, approaches to that. And I think that what's driving uh, kind of the more extreme um, approach to that integration now is largely economic. It's about uh, developing this area, which is an important part of China. But then that raises the question is, why can't the region be um, integrated, developed with the participation of the indigenous peoples. And I think a, a big part of that has to do with how uh, the narrative of the war on terror, the global war on terror, has influenced Chinese state policies and Chinese state attitudes towards uh, the region. It's, it's essentially the state has interpreted any, any calls for a modicum of self-determination in the region or participation in the development of the region to be uh, terrorism and extremism. And, and I think that over time, you know, that, that began right after 9-11, and it was, I think, very opportunistic at that point where the Chinese state uh, decided to shift from characterizing Uyghurs as a separatist threat uh, to a terrorist threat. But with time, that really began to uh, create a corrosive idea of equating Uyghurs and anybody in the Uyghur region who's Muslim with terrorism. And I think that that has served to be a kind of a dehumanization of the, the local population of the region that has led to the ability uh, to frame policy in terms of erasure and elimination. So in many ways, I, I see what's happening in the region now to be very akin to what's happened to indigenous peoples elsewhere faced with settler colonialism. The people have been excluded. Um, their attachment to the land has been severed. Um, and um, their culture has been essentially erased, particularly their social capital, which would um, be any kind of uh, source of resistance. Um, the last point I want to make, I think, is important. There's a lot of discussion now about this issue becoming wrapped into um, global 
uh, competition between great powers and concern about um, a new Cold War between uh, China and the U.S. And I think it, it, it makes sense to reframe that issue. What we do see globally right now is we see the establishment of a more multipolar uh, hierarchy of power in the world, which is, uh, which is probably a good thing overall. Um, you know, the U.S. has been in a position for a long time where uh, the U.S. has been able to uh, position itself as an exception to universal norms like human rights. And uh, one would like to think that in a multipolar world, uh, that would not happen. But the question I, I have um, maybe for the, the panel and for the discussion today is uh, how can in this context where we see something that uh, very much looks, I, I term it cultural genocide, um, not to uh, engage with the controversial issue of whether it's genocide or not, but akin to the erasure of a, a, a nation of people. Um, how can we ensure that a multipolar world protects the, uh, the norms of universal human rights to prevent these kind of things happening, whether they're in China or in the U.S. or anywhere else? Um, so that's just a couple remarks uh, to get us started. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sean Roberts, for your opening remarks and talking a bit more about why you think the perfect storm is brewing right now. Our last intro remarks is from the one and only Alex Chow. You have the stage now for five minutes to share your remarks. Um, yes. Uh, Thanks, Sin, like for and team for for your great opening remark. I just want to respond to like well, uh, some of the stuff that you guys talk about because when I look at Tim's map, like well, the map that you have like four columns, and I saw like Tibetans and Uyghurs being placed on on the right hand side of the map. I was also thinking like well, um, how could we map like well Hong Kongers and say like Taiwanese uh, on the map? Like well, how 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 are these people like perceived by the Chinese state? And it seems like well, uh, perhaps. Uh, in, like before 2019 or before the national security law was introduced to Hong Kong uh, last year, Hong Kongers might be on the left-hand side of the map. But, but right now, uh, it seems like most of the Hong Kongers they would agree that like we are now on the right-hand side of the map. And uh, like, well, recent news in Hong Kong would be about like a how uh, national education is being introduced in Hong Kong and how the curriculum might be reformed in the long run so that the government could have a control over uh, what the next generation might be thinking. So it seems like it could be like a new kind of re-education camp, not the type in Ruger, but the time in a more like civilized way, but equally brutal and violent. And when uh, Sin talk about like a war on terrorism and how the lexicon and language of like separatist and terrorists like were used in like labeling some of the Uyghur people. Uh, one interesting fact that happened in Hong Kong was that uh, like these terms were also deployed and accused by the government in, in pointing fingers to the activists in Hong Kong. So uh, in the past few decades, like separatists might might be the major like talking point in accusing activists who might like well travel to the U.S. or travel to the U.K. 
uh, to do advocacy work, to do lobbying. So surely they will be accused as like, well, um, separatist. Uh, they, they, they might be advocating for Hong Kong independence. And this also became like a mainstream strategy used by the government after the 2014 umbrella movement. Uh, so like the government started to accusing students of advocating for independence. But when you look at the survey done by the scholars, actually only a handful of people thought that uh, independence would be a possible or viable solution for Hong Kong. So it is obviously not an accurate like description of like what Hong Kongers aspiration is. They want like, or we want democracy, but not like independence like well, at that time. But what is also interesting, like recently was like, there was like a, uh, that the term of like, well, terrorist, it was also deployed by the local pro Beijing uh, mouthpiece, uh, news media, and also politicians in attacking the pro-democracy activists. So in recent week, uh, there's like a union organizer, they, they did a, like a movie screening, a documentary screening on the 2019 anti-extradition uh, build movement. So that documentary was about like uh, how the police was teaching university and protesters uh, in Hong Kong. So that documentary was basically about like how protesters were surrounded by police. But like, well, uh, uh, while that event was being screened, the next day, what happened and being reported on the media was that a group of like, well, uh, terrorists, they were trying to spread the idea of terrorism in Hong Kong. So it seems to be like a new development that like how the lexicon emerging from war on terrorism being transposed or translated into China. And now it got spread into Hong Kong as well. So that seems to be like a new political language that the government might also be using. And the funny thing is like, uh, uh, we, we knew that like, well, uh, the, the way or the reason why the government were using this kind of like new lexicon was because like, well, their own narrative was not working and they could not really win people's heart. And that's why they have to resort to like, well, different political language at least to maintain trust and confidence and connection with their supporters. And that might be like a new development, like well for Hong Kong in the next couple of years, we might be able to see like, well, this kind of language being circulated. And my last point I would like to make is like, well, to connect like, well, all these like, well, political development uh, through a historical lens, because like Xin and Tim, they talk about like, well, how uh, Xinjiang or, um, uh, West Turkestan was like, well, it had like, it has like a changing or evolving relationship with the Chinese state. And Hong Kong like happens in this way as well. And uh, if we like see Hong Kong or try to like, well, place Hong Kong in a more dynamic map, then perhaps we could see like Hong Kong always has like an evolving relationship with the Chinese state. So in the 1980s, when like well, one country, two systems was brought up, uh, it was like first an idea to govern like well Tibet or like well Xinjiang, but by then like well the Chinese state would like to use the idea to really reunite with Taiwan at the end, and it can't. And Hong Kong became the target to implement one country two system. But the narrative like or the relationship between China and Hong Kong was that like well, it was more or less more equal. So Hong Kong would bring economic benefit to China for economic development. But after 1997, then there was like a new narrative coming into Hong Kong, telling Hong Kongers that, hey, Hong Kongers should also learn to be a loyal nationalist, to be a Chinese, so you know how to pledge allegiance to the Chinese state. And after 
2008, there was like a new sort of narrative about like a China-Hong Kong relationship, uh, which might have to do with the financial crisis. You have the China model being brought into the world and the Chinese state like seemed to be like more confident about its way of development. And Hong Kongers were told that like, well, Hong Kong has to integrate with China economically. Otherwise, Hong Kong and Hong Kongers would be marginalized. So that has been like, well, for like more a decade. And in the recent two years, there's like a new narrative about like, well, either my way or the highway, Hong Kong has to know how to serve the country. And that also has to do with like, well, the changing dynamic within China and also the role of China in the global world. So that might connect back to like, well, um, the US-China relation and how we think about like well, the issue of Hong Kong or Uyghur uh, in the context of the changing Chinese, uh, China-U.S. relation, and also like well the new uh, global context uh, concerning like well uh, what kind of new political opportunities might we identify in this dynamic changing landscape? Uh, uh, are there like threats, uh, like well dangers, uh, like well uh, challenges and opportunities? How we could perceive them and try to like well place ourselves into the map so we could like have more agency. And to act upon the opportunities like well facing us, so that might be some of the uh, points that I would like make uh, for our conversation in the next half an hour or an hour. Thank you, Alex, and thank you, Tim, and thank you, Sean, for all of these remarkable intro remarks. I think what we really heard here is that the experiences of the people in each region are indeed very different and very unique, but there are common threads, right? So for example, we mentioned the CCP's use of natural, national education. We talked about the CCP's lexicon, right? Like terrorism or separatism. And we also talked about the CCP's desire for political development. And all your intro remarks really touched upon several of the questions that I've prepared. So I'm gonna dive into another question that we have not discussed. And so that question is, what do you think is the Chinese Communist Party's final goal? Whoever wants to start may go ahead. Um, I can I can start. Um, you know, I'm I'm I, I can talk more to uh, its final goal in the Uyghur region. Um, although I think it is related, I do think that um, since the rise of Xi Jinping, there is a there is a concern for trying to um, to present a united front throughout all of the regions of China to create kind of this flattening um, and to ensure you know. And I think this very much relates to Hong Kong, as well as the Uyghur region, as well as Tibet. Um, and I think that um, it's interesting, uh, probably about eight years ago now, I, I remember I was um, increasingly approached by people in Hong Kong who were concerned about uh, what was happening in the Uyghur region because they saw it very much through the prism of the issue of them both being, quote unquote, autonomous regions. And um, I think a lot of people in Hong Kong at that time were looking at the Uyghur region and saying, this could be our future. Um, of course, the future in the Uyghur region got worse and it got worse in Hong Kong as well. Um, 
But I think, you know, in terms of the Uyghur region, I, I do think that the goal of the state is to establish um, kind of a generic part of China that's developed along the lines of the rest of um, mainland PRC and uh, where the, the indigenous population really doesn't have uh, significant representation, is essentially marginalized, uh, pacified, ensured that it, 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 uh, its connection to the land is severed. Um, and establish a region where there's very little trace. You know, I mean, it's interesting what Tim said about uh, how tourism drives uh, things in Tibet to allow a certain modicum of Tibetan culture. I think, you know, there's a little bit of that uh, interest in the Uyghur region as well in creating some tourist sites that, you know, talk to this idea of an exotic uh, region of China represented by, um, you know, kind of this idealist version of Uyghur culture. Um, but it's not the prominent narrative in the Uyghur region because there isn't the same connection. It would it would appeal to a different tourist who wants something much more exotic and different. Um, but I, I do think that, um, you know, that that is why we're seeing um, the indigenous peoples of the Uyghur region essentially being sidelined from the development of the area. And, and I'll add, uh, I agree with everything Sean said. And I think if we look at it uh, kind of from, you know, through a theoretical lens, I think what the CCP is trying to do is to dilute and finally eradicate nationalism that still exists on on the, the historical peripheries of uh, of China, and so you know um, what that's going to look like in the end is going to be a little bit harder to to predict. But I think that they they the CCP realizes um, nationalism and a nationalism that's not dying uh, amongst Tibetans amongst Uyghurs. We don't really see with with Kuei, but with the new um, um, textbooks and, and the new uh, language policies in, in, in Inner Mongolia. We also see this among, among Mongols too. Um, but what I think where they're they're off in their predictions, uh, where they've miscalculated, uh, is that they're trying to replace uh, this you know nationalism that's been centuries in, in in the making with a form of another nationalism with with kind of a Han centric Zhonghua uh, Minzu nationalism, um, and you know. <laughs> the theories on nationalism, um, which which you know ha have stood the test of time, show that that this actually ignites and stimulates uh, a responsive nationalism. Right? It doesn't. You just can't replace one nationalism with with another. It certainly doesn't. That dynamic doesn't take place overnight. But it's usually then it 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 ignites. It produces where it doesn't doesn't exist anymore, or where it never existed in the first place. Um, um, a type of nationalism. And I think that's why we're seeing these kind of growing responses and growing resistance uh, amongst uh, Uyghurs, Tibetans, and 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 uh, and now Mongols. Yeah, I, I would try to like well uh, build on what Tim and 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 Sin have said, uh, and try to like well uh, bring the focus to Hong Kong and connect it back to like Uyghur and China, maybe perhaps. Uh, so it seems like um, like the ultimate goal for for like well for the Chinese state like well, what they want to do in Hong Kong is to gain total control over Hong Kong, uh, because like well in the past two years it seems like or it is 
very obvious that like, well, the, the government was losing control. It could not really govern the city. And the opposition camp actually like, well, took over uh, the election. So in 2019, you have the like, well, uh, almost like a half year long anti-extradition movement. And by the end of the year, there was like an election in Hong Kong and the pro-democracy camp actually swept uh, the election. They gained like 90% of the seats. And that was like a really alarming signal for the government because like next year, that would be the legislative council election. So if the pro-democracy camp uh, would have the same foothold, then actually the government would lose its control over the veto vote. And we would also lose control over the governance of the city. And, and that was why like, well, the government like, well, planned it or it like, well, canceled the election last year and it jailed all the pro-democracy activists who participated in uh, the electrical primary election earlier this year. And you can see that like, well, it was a way to maintain control over the city because like it knew that if, if it allows the game to play by the same rule, then it would lose. And, and that's why it has to change the rule of the game. And that's why like uh, activists and uh, uh, like, well, uh, folks who run for election, they were jailed. And the, 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 the goal or uh, the outcome uh, of like, well, jailing those activists or almost like, well, all of the prominent activists, the effect was that like, well, you actually grill, you sideline, you, you silence all the uh, protesters because like well, folks would know like there will be outcome, there'll be cost. And, and they might end up like, well, uh, being like well, accused of like national security law. They might have to think about like well, whether they could congregate uh, on the street, whether they could protest or what type of pro uh, protest repertoire they could use. So as to voice that discontent against the government. So that would be the effect or the chilling effect that the government hoped to see. And uh, the purpose for that is to buy time so the government could regain their foothold and control over the city, at least for the next couple of years, if the opposition camp and if the leaders of the opposition camp and also the protesters, if they either are being silenced or they might like choose to flee the city, then it was easier for the, for the government to regain control. And that might also like help alleviate the pressure uh, for Beijing to think about how it could reposition itself uh, in the global landscape. Uh, if it could like really tackle the local crisis, then it might also have more time uh, to rethink how it could strategize. So in the long run, it could like, well, uh, take over the United States as another great power. And it seems to be the trajectory that we are seeing, like about how the two power, great power, like are competing over one another. Uh, what strategy, uh, what uh, allies they might like trying to build. And there seems to be like one trend that we are observing uh, so for folks like ordinary people, it would be really hard to engage in the government-to-government -government conversation or negotiation. You could only think about like uh, how like well, people-focused or people-centered movement could align with one another. Uh, so that seems to be the route to go. And our last point I would like to add, um, and that might also be relevant, is to think about uh, Xi Jinping's uh, perhaps not personality, but like well, uh, his role at this like well historical juncture. So uh, like we might be going into the 19th year of the CCP. So like, well, reflecting back, you could only imagine like, well, uh, Chairman Mao and Deng Xiaoping as the two other great like men uh, uh, like, uh, of the modern China. So she might be thinking about the same thing, thinking along the same line. So he might be the great, the, the third great person in governing and leading the CCP and governing China and what kind of legacy he might want to leave and what kind of new uh, Chinese state he would like to build so that he has his legacy over the planet. 
So that might be like, well, some of the intention for him as well uh, as the person. And that merged with like his national goal about like how to rebuild China and how to like reposition China in the global map. So it could like, well, occupy a niche uh, like in influencing the global order and also to build like, well, the Chinese order like, well, in the long run. Thank you all. So, so what I'm hearing here is that Xi Jinping is presenting a united force. Uh, the party, CCP, is uh, how Tim mentioned it, diluting and eradicating. These two words are very strong, I think. And, and diluting and eradicating these unique histories of these people. And they are, CCP is ultimately changing the rules of the game. And I think this is a really great segue to the next question. Uh, why are there disconnects between how Xi Jinping, how Beijing views their own actions and behaviors and how the rest of the world, you know, namely the U.S. views Beijing's behavior? So you know, as Alex mentioned, you know, Al Xi Jinping is strategizing. He wants to build his own legacy of achieving the Chinese dream. What do you think the rest of the world thinks about this? I guess I can start again. <laughs> um, I guess, um, you know, building on what Alex was just saying, um, I do at times feel that uh, Xi Jinping and his supporters in the CCP are looking at, um, they're looking at what the United States has done um, over uh, the last, I guess, post-World War II as kind of the global hegemon. And um, I think Xi Jinping feels that that's the rules of the game and that, um, you know, there's no, there's no need to pay any attention to these global norms, but that if, if China can replace the U.S., um, that the PRC can make the rules as to what are those global norms and can be, you know, the exceptional state the, to which uh, everything doesn't apply necessarily. Um, so I do think that there's, there's, uh, I get a sense that, um, for the Chinese government, they don't really, they don't really believe in, um, any ideas about, um, the global norms related to, uh, human rights, um, citizen participation. They feel that that's a relative concept. And, um, you know, unlike, uh, unlike the Soviet Union, it's not necessarily trying to export their um, model, but, but I think the PRC wants to be able to decide what its internal model is and not have any criticism whatsoever from the outside. I think for uh, the, the outside world, um, you know, a lot of this is very shocking to watch, um, you know, and I think particularly, I think the, the situation in the Uyghur homeland is probably the most, um, you know, the most kind of reprehensible, the most kind of um, jarring in terms of its brutality. Um, but I think that, you know, all of these things together, um, I think the, the a lot of people in the outside world uh, don't know what to think about this if um, China is one of the leading countries in the world, can, can we just tolerate this kind of suspension of human rights um, and go along with business as usual in terms of um, 
the global economy, which, you know, which, of course, China is a critical part of. Tim or Alex, if you yeah, want to add on. Yeah, I, I might bring in another point uh, that might help us like think about like, well, uh, why there's a gap. Uh, so one one possible or one prominent interpretation that we've often heard, which I find uh, quite valid is that like, well, what happened after the 2008 financial crisis? Like, there's like a change in China-US relation. Uh, because like before 2008, like, well, U.S. model, especially as economic model was like a, a model that China would aspire to, like to, to learn about, to really adopt its economy so it could like, well, really develop itself. But after 2008, uh, it was kind of obvious that like the, many of the Chinese leaders felt like, well, hey, the U.S. was really failing on its front. It really could not sustain its economy, and there's a lot of like where crisis happening within the U.S. and uh, elsewhere. Like, well, if we follow like well uh, the footstep of the U.S. economic model, and it seems like democracy also doesn't help in alleviating those crises. So why should we listen or pay attention to like well the Western democracy because well their systems are collapsing. And that might be like a shocking point or a point of realization for many of the Chinese leader, uh, for them to like, well, reflect on or rethink like uh, how the Chinese model actually could walk another path. And they might be creating something new that might be different from like, well, uh, the model that was developed and, and used like, well, after the Second World War. So that might seems to be like, well, one possible like, well, interpretation or argument for the Chinese leader to think about or, or to feel like, well, they do not have to listen to the world and they know what they are doing and they're experimenting uh, with their own methods and they should be confident about it. And that's why it is like not rare or quite common to hear that like, well, uh, they like what uh, the, the Chinese like state of, of officials, they're like repeatedly like telling themselves and circulating ideas among themselves that they have to be confident about the Chinese model. They have to be confident about their path. They do not really have to uh, harbor that many self-doubt so I feel like it also aligned with like, well, the global dynamic uh, on like, well, how like, well, the economic landscape is changing and like the globalization policy in the past three decades, uh, it created some problems that opened up like, well, new political possibility uh, for the Chinese leaders. Um, well, like whether that's bad, good or bad, that's another issue that we could talk about. And I'll just add one one really quick point that you know I don't know how it how it how it fits in with the kind of grander geopolitical schemes of the, of the CCP. That's kind of beyond my my areas of of interest and expertise. But I think that one of the CCP's most effective tools in gaining global support for its uh, quote unquote peaceful rise is is constantly pointing to uh, the U.S.'s own human rights violations, especially beyond its own its own borders. Um, and so, you know, the the CCP has has framed the United States, and, and to a certain degree, with with um, you know, with with valid reason and valid concerns of of this projection of violence beyond its own borders, whereas the CCP is saying that it's almost a, a benevolent developer of of other countries and countries that the U.S. Uh, has turned its back on. But in the meantime, they keep the information about what's going on in China so so almost secretive. 
uh, you know, remember they were denying the existence of, of these transformation through education centers for a year before they admitted to them, but they they reframed them, right? Um, so they're they're letting they're again they're they're diverting attention to the U.S.'s own atrocities. Again, we should be concerned and condemn those. Then the meantime, keeping a really tight lid on what's going on inside towards own people, and then when they're confronted with it, they 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 say it's an internal matter. We should respect Chinese sovereignty. Um, so again, I think that this this also adds into their their uh, their greater their their grander strategies. But to what extent? Um, yeah, I'll let other experts weigh in on that. Thank you all. I want to remain cognizant of the time, so I will ask one last question before we open it up for Q and A for folks tuning in. Remember to ask a question below via the little link below that says "Ask a Question," and you can type it there. So the last question I'd like to ask you guys during this moderated conversation part is, how do you think this will all evolve in the next five to 10 years? Well, I'll start, I'll, I'll start this time. And I, I'm always reluctant and hesitant to give um, predictions. Um, though what I see happening, unfortunately, is just a, a kind of a, a, a greater polarization of, of geopolitics uh, and that kind of seeping down uh, into to civic society where, where you're going to kind of harden uh, these political divides. Um, and you, we had this conversation in private and and, um, and some kind of taking, taking Sean's uh, ideas here and he can um, elaborate if he wants to. But I think the US has, has caught itself uh, in quite a conundrum uh, when they've been publicly uh, accusing the CCP of genocide, yet yet still wants to participate uh, in the 2022 Olympics, and so you know, you know, uh, is the accusations there, and 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 not just the accusations, but are the actions against uh, the CCP for its 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 terrible treatment of of its indigenous peoples, especially Uyghurs and, and Tibetans and other. Is it only going to remain in this kind of stage of political discourse and the kind of the, the rattling of sabers between diplomats, or is it actually going to translate into meaningful action that will sway the CCP's course? And, and there, I don't know if I have confidence, right? I, I worry that it's just going to be a kind of a war of words um, for the next, next, next few years. Sean or Alex, if you want to add on. Sure, I'll just add that. I mean, I think, you know, um, I, I agree very much with Tim. I think that um, really, I often, when I often think about this, I think um, we have no idea where this is going in the next five to 10 years. Um, I think there's one scenario, which is, um, you know, the dominance of, uh, the power of multinational corporations trying to just keep the status quo going and making sure the global economy still rolls. And there is this saber rattling, as, as Tim says. We could see things spiral into uh, a much worse situation with conflict. Um, you know, as I said at the opening uh, of my remarks, I really think it's a time for... Um, those people interested in human rights, looking at the changing geopolitical context and trying to think about how um, 
we can ensure that universal human rights become stronger and not weaker. Um, you know, because I think I think it's it's really unpredictable. I think it, a lot depends on so many factors. It depends on um, what powerful um, you know actors do. It depends on what um, grassroots activists do. But I do feel that we're heading into a time where um, you know, as imperfect as the universal human rights uh, regime has been since World War II, we're looking at a, a, a potential point where it's only just going to get much worse. And I think it's, it's really should be looked at as a global issue and, you know, um, not just about China, but I think it's about um, where the world's heading. Yeah, I agree very much. The like I agree very much about the analysis. Like it could be, it could be a very pessimistic future for the uh, next five years if we like, well, like look at like well the the government to government like relationship, uh, because it might like well like the worst is yet to come. The the worst is yet to come, and we and 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 this is like the the feeling and the perception of many of my Hong Kong friends who are like still like well staying in Hong Kong. They knew that the worst is yet to come, and they are just gonna be prepared. Uh, for the worst to come and we're not sure like well when that turning point and water shape might arrive but it seems like well uh, what folks can do is like the like-minded people have to come together and strategize uh because like well although like the, the government or the regime they might using different repressive tools to really silence the people or try to cover up like well uh the bad things that they have done but like well uh folks who would like to see change and facilitate change you might still be seeing a lot of like uh, uh, creative tactics or resistance like what happening uh, all over the place, at least like in Hong Kong. So there will be like an election by the end of the year, although it would no longer be a genuine election. But uh, folks in Hong Kong are thinking about like, well, how to cast a protest vote. And if they could cast a protest vote, then that might also send out a signal to the international community that like, well, the Hong Kong is still fighting. And it might also give the international world another talking point about like, well, hey, the resistance in Hong Kong is not that. And that might also like, well, uh, create or open up political opportunities for the government to government uh, conversation and also to keep the pressure on the Chinese government. But surely like, well, the issue is much bigger than the Chinese government, because when we talk about like, well, the economy, the environment, technology, and other issues related to that, we do need a global effort uh, to reform the global system. But how to achieve that or how to like, well, uh, think about the roadmap of head, like th that would be difficult. So perhaps we could only like do a thing at a time while like, well, keeping those ideas in mind uh, to think about like, well, how we could like, well, push things uh, like uh, um, at the same time or through due track. So at one point they might converge. So I do feel like, well, uh, we have a lot of things to do uh, to really to create more political opportunities to connect like about the Hong Kong issues with the bigger issues with the Olympic next year and also the economic negotiation going on and also how the global allies they're trying to like well reform their uh, alliance system. So I do feel like well people do have a voice in it and we we, we, need, to we need to change and shift or shift the narrative because like well. The Chinese model, which was like, well, is which is dominate, which is dominating the world right now, it only happened and emerged after 2008, and it took almost like a five to ten years 
to really like well became a prominent narrative like used by the Chinese state. So if we are looking for the next five to ten years, then perhaps there are like multiple new narratives that we could think about and imagine, and we have to start from today. And in ten years time, we might be able to see a new landscape. Uh, but that depends on like well how we strategize and ally with one another uh, from today. So we could see change in the next five, ten, or fifteen years. Thank you all for these answers. I think Alex, what you mentioned, the worst is yet to come, is is quite bleak, right? And indeed, we've seen the trend of authoritarianism on the rise around the globe. But this is why it's so urgent for all of us here today, here in civil society, you know, to keep to come together and to push for change, right? And that means, you know, talking to corporations, talking to your favorite fashion brands, you know, urging them to translate their words into action, right? And that also means, Alex, like you mentioned, the upcoming Olympics in Beijing 2022, right? An authoritarian regime such as China should not be able to host these games. So that we can make change together if we take, if we take action now, it's really urgent. Um, I'm going to now open it up for Q&A, and I do see that below in the ask a question box, we do have questions lined up. Uh, the first one here, Amanda Florian asked, quote, in a world of misinformation, do you think social media sites like Twitter hurt or help the cause, especially as it relates to sharing accurate information about Xinjiang and the current genocide? Thank you for asking. If anyone wants I'll, to take this. I'll, I'll start this one because I'm in the trenches uh, on, on, on Twitter. And I think initially um, social media played a very, very important role about spreading awareness. Um, and it was through Twitter that academics were able to reach out to journalists who up until, and this is I'm thinking of 2017, up until 2017, early 2018, wouldn't touch the story. So many of us were coming back from the liberal region uh, after summer research in 2017 and, and a peak in 2018 and sharing our experiences. And, you know, at that time, very few journalists would, would touch the story because they, they didn't have enough information. Um, and so, you know, beginning in 2018, you know, we saw um, a, a proliferation of, of good information, of accurate information that we were getting from Chinese government websites uh, themselves. And Chinese government websites then began cracking down and uh, basically scrubbing uh, what what they had, uh, you know, openly uh, available. Um, and then, you know, proponents uh, of, 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 or in the Friends of Uyghurs and, and Uyghur advocacy groups, um, you know, were then becoming, I think, less vigil vigilant of, about the types of materials they were sharing. And some of it was just purely fabricated. Uh, and this began to sow seeds of doubt uh, to, to people uh, on social media and provided rich fodder for especially leftists uh, who want to deny uh, all atrocities. And then they could point to, you know, segments or examples of this information and say, if this is uh, inaccurate or if this is false, then why, who's to say that the entire thing isn't false? And I think that at least on social media, we have to realize that social media is just one small segment of society uh, in this now turned into a very politicized debate about what's happening with Uyghurs that it's still a, a, a part of society that needs to be engaged. Uh, and so, so then with this, in, this uh, misinformation coming from proponents of, of, of the Uyghurs and those who want to advocate for Uyghur rights, you also have people who uh, are denying all atrocities uh, and are 
producing and disseminating uh, their, um, you know, essentially uh, conflations and lies about about the um, uh, about the nihilist uh, rhetoric, and they have support of of the Chinese Communist Party and basically people who have no uh, expertise uh, or experience in the region are being uh, propped up by the Chinese Communist Party as as so-called experts on the region just because they say something uh, that is in line with uh, with the party's portrayal and, and representation uh, of the region. So I think that you know, the social media, again, at, at first provided a really um, important starting point uh, to raise awareness. But as time wore on, it's becoming more of, a, I think, uh, of an obstacle. Uh, uh, and I think it's, it's left a lot of people confused. Yeah, and I, I would just add, you know, I mean, I think um, social media is great for um, the critical thinker who's able to distinguish between different sources of information. I think it, it, it's, it's something that um, as a global society, I think that you know, we're really faced with a crisis of information literacy and um, getting to a point where people can um, consume information critically and look at different sources in and make informed decisions. And the problem is, you know, you have so many actors now on social media, as, as Tim was saying, um, the Chinese Communist Party uh, is pushing officials, their ambassadors and so on onto Twitter, even though they don't allow Twitter in the country to push certain narratives. You have, um, you have, you know, the use of bots and you use the use of all different types of um, fake uh, profiles to push information. So it's it's a very hazardous field. And then it has an added um, problem, which is it can create these bubbles of people who um, don't bother looking at other information. And then they become isolated and, um, and, and can believe in very, um, you know, very extreme ideas. I mean, um, the the QAnon conspiracy is a case in point on this, um, you know, where you can just have uh, thousands of people uh, starting to believe a narrative that is completely weaved out of Netherland, you know. So um, yeah, I think it. I think it. You know, it's 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 an important resource. I gain a lot by communicating with my colleagues on it, but. Um, I think it, it has a lot of pitfalls that as a society around the world, we have to uh, address. Yeah, I only have a short comment. Uh, I think social media is a great tool, but it harms your personal health. Uh, so that might be the trade-off. Like, so how to stay sane and healthy, that would be the, it would really be the priority like for users, uh, especially if you are really concerned about like our current affairs, and the latest political development or economic development in, in China and elsewhere, uh, you must be seeing a lot of negativity and negative news with hatred, anger. And how do you like, well, take a step back and you have a distance uh, like, well, towards like, well, those emotions that would be really crucial because I do feel like, well, right now, like activists, human beings, policymakers, we're all being manipulated by social media. We might see ourselves as, as active users, but we are also being controlled and affected 
by the information and emotions circulated in, on social media. So how we could like flip that dynamic around and that would be a challenge uh, for maybe a decade to come until new technology is invented or like more well, human beings are more adapted in discerning information. Thank you. Um, how best can private actors such as NGOs, corporations, individuals support the pro-democracy efforts of the people in the Uyghur region, Tibet, Hong Kong, Taiwan, even those overseas in the diaspora? Uh, I only have like an overarching argument. Uh, so I like last year I was like reflecting on like, well, how China ascended to like the, the global world uh, through uh, the entrance of WTO. So uh, when we like, well, reflect uh, on the past and the history, then it seems like, well, human rights causes and economic like, well, trade, they were once being placed on the, on, 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 on the same level. Like, well, they were like treated equally or less being requested uh, to accomplish, accomplish like economic trade and human rights. Uh, improvement at the same time, but because of like business interest and, and lobbying, then the human rights causes or demand were dropped it. Well, during the negotiation of whether like, well, China could enter WTO. So it seems like the, the idea is obvious. And, and the answer would be like how we could really relink politics, economy and human rights together. And even with like, well, environmental, environmental protection, I do feel like, well, they do these issues do connect with one another. So that would be that would be the big goal. That would be the big goal that we have to achieve. How like business interests could really like well be minimized. Like well, they should not be the priority when we talk about human rights and also democracy. They should they should only be one of the many actors like well shaping the game and shaping the rule. The question perhaps next would be like how we could really like well uh, persuade or discipline like well multinational or transnational businesses or local businesses and enterprise in really rethinking their like, well, labor practices and also uh, their, their, their trade relationship with like overturn regime or with their counterparts in overturn regime, then I do feel like, well, the state or say the Western state, they still, have, they still do have a role to think about how they could re-regulate the market. And, and that seems to be like a way to go. And, and the consumers should also like, well, use our money and use our choice to really invest in like well business that might be pro democracy and to really like well, persuade and urge or pressure uh, like well businesses who might be like say uh, buying cotton from the Xinjiang region to pull off from those sites and we have to keep pressing uh, those businesses to like well to think about those issues and we do feel like we need to identify like multiple actors and how those actors might create a synergy that might change the economic and political landscape. So that might be like a more theoretical answer, but like, well, if folks have ideas, have plans, let's just do it. It's a really great question. And, and though, unfortunately, I think what, what it does and, and perhaps to the, the light of, of Western governments is that it puts the burden on, on, on private society, on civic society. And I think one of the areas where I think that maybe civic society could have, uh, could maybe could urge or push along governments is 
is to actually have a, a set of explicit demands of what they expect China to do. So just say that China should end all of its human rights abuses. Well, that's 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 fine and good, and it should, but it's too vague, it's too ambiguous. It doesn't give a list of demands. And so when thinking about wiggle regions and what's going on there, you know, I think that 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 society should have a list of very clear expectations. And I think they should begin with uh, the closure of all transformation re-education centers, uh, the release of uh, Uyghur elites, so uh, academics, uh, popular culture, celebrities, um, politicians who have been um, uh, exigently detained, some sentenced for trumped up charges. I think that, that they should be demanded to be released uh, to be sure that uh, supply chains no longer use coerced and forced labor. Uh, and I think also importantly uh, that, that there should be demands that Uyghur language should be, um, you know, uh, should be again promoted beyond elementary school uh, and even be re reintroduced to the university level again since 2004, I believe it was, it was uh, been excluded from uh, Xinjiang University, most prestigious university. Uh, in, in the region. So I think a list of specific demands could go a long way uh, and to hold China accountable for, for meeting, meeting this. So having to actually making these, hitting these benchmarks. Yeah, I think that, I, I think that's a really good point that Tim makes about having concrete demands. Um, I think one of the problems is uh, I've always found this with issues related to the Uyghur region, the demands, uh, you know, would require China changing its approach to governance writ large in many ways, which, which means that um, I really think uh, there, I often think about this in terms of the, the only way that the behavior of the Chinese state is going to change with regards to its citizens is if the people in the Chinese state decide to change it, right? You know, I mean, the U.S. is not going to be able to uh, change uh, how the Chinese government acts towards its citizens. The U.N.'s not going to be able to change them. It has to come from people in the Chinese Communist Party or the people of China. And um, I think that that's only possible if there is a feeling among people who are powerful within China that the things they're doing are not in their best interest as a state. Um, and, 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 and on that, I agree with, um, you know, what Alex said about the economic pressure. And I do think consumer advocacy is a really uh, powerful tool right now. And this is a flip side of social media, right? Is that now, um, it, if people start attacking companies on social media and it goes viral, uh, the, the corporation responds. Um, and this happens, you know, we had this recently in, in China related to the forced labor issue in the Uyghur region where um, you had it both in China and elsewhere, um, people, you know, trying to uh, argue different sides of it. But I think that, the, the you know, thinking about boycotting, divesting um, of the the companies that are complicit in some of the human rights abuses in China is um, one way to really convince 
the Chinese Communist Party that what it's doing is not in its best interest as a global economic power and political power. Thank you all. Um, all of you shared really great ideas of what we can all do, right, to help hold China, the Chinese government, accountable for their atrocities. Um, I'm sorry to say that this is all the time that we have for today, but again, I want to thank all three of you, Dr. Tim Gross, Dr. Sean Roberts, and Alex Chow, for your time today. For everyone tuning in, if you enjoyed this conversation, please do follow HRF on Twitter, as well as all of our panelists here. Um, Alex Chow's Twitter is AlexChow18. Uh, Dr. Tim Gross's Twitter is GrossTimothy. And Dr. Sean Roberts' Twitter is RobertsReport. Join us again for session two. Session one was remarkable, and I'm sure session two will be great as well. The next session will take place at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And the topic will be highlighting the unprecedented digital repression in the Uyghur region. So we'll be talking about you know, how China is weaponizing the newest emerging technologies to really impact the lives of millions. The speakers of session two will include Human Rights Foundation's Alex Glassstein, award-winning BuzzFeed correspondent Mega Rajagopalan, Axios China reporter Bethany Allen Abrahamian, and Dr. Darren Byler, anthropologist at Uyghur and a Uyghur technopolitics expert. So again, thank you all for tuning in today for session one, and we look forward to seeing you later at session two. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>